Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Keep thy foot when thou goest into the house of God. Be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow, than thou shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore, or why, should God be angry at thy voice, and destroy the work of thine hands? For in the multitude of dreams, in many words, there are also divers vanities, but fear thou God. Today we live in what one writer has called one of the most sacrilegious and blasphemous church cultures in the history of Christianity. And you know, I agree with him. We hear sermon titles like, What Would Jesus Say to Bart Simpson? I heard of one preacher who preached a message about the, recalled the man that was lame and his friends were trying to get him to Jesus and so they got to the house and the house was full. They couldn't get in. They went on the top and they let their friend down in for Jesus to heal and the preacher preached that message entitled it, Four of a Kind Beats a Full House. There was a seven week sermon series, Everything I Need to Know, I learned from Andy Griffith. These things are going on in the Lord's churches. We live in a day of specialists, and the day of specialists has made it over into specialized churches. We have churches for cowboys. We have churches for motorcycle groups. I'm just waiting for the day that they come up with the procrastinator's church. And that's the one for people who are going to get around to it someday, get around to going to church. Or they'll come up with the anti-church church church for people who don't want to go at all. I think that's the online church these days, and that's where a lot of people worship. But today, churches are struggling, and we're going to talk about worship this morning, if you haven't figured that out. Today, churches are struggling to determine what constitutes a worship that is acceptable to God. Young people many times say, well, we want something that's contemporary. We're tired of singing those old hymns. Well, let me just say this. And I know some may disagree with me, but you'll learn more about the Word of God. You'll learn more about God's love for mankind. You'll learn more about Christ's sacrifice for mankind singing those old hymns than you will do singing or chanting some kumbaya chorus for about 20 or 30 minutes. If you hadn't figured out, I like the old hymns. Older folks, for the most part, desire traditional worship. Some are so traditional they don't want to involve modern technology, you know, PowerPoints and live streaming and things like that into the worship of God. Listen, God gave us the technology to do this, and the world is going to use the technology to get its message out, so why shouldn't God's people use the technology that God has given to get God's message out to a lost and to a dying world? But you know what I want? I'm going to tell you what I want as your pastor. I just want scriptural, biblical worship that glorifies God and that God can say well done to. That's what I want as a pastor and I want for this church. 
So the question arises, can we just decide that we're going to worship God any old way? Because there's a growing trend to that. Let's just just do it any old way because it's more important to worship than it is to worship a specific way. And so somebody asked this, are we intolerant then to say that not everything that is called worship is worship that is acceptable to God? Well, I just want to share a couple of verses of Scripture with you. But listen to Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. God speaking through Isaiah. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom, and give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. So the first thing he does is he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread by courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They're a trouble unto me. I'm weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. And then God says, come now. We hear this verse a lot of times used in reference to people being saved. God's talking to His people right here. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, and though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You know what God was saying to Israel? Your worship isn't cutting it. You're not right with me, and you come and try to worship, remember what they had done. They were wanting to worship idols and God at the same time, and God said, don't do it. I will not receive that kind of worship. And then John 4, 24, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him. How? In spirit and in truth. Now listen, God is the one and since he is the one being worshiped, God gets to decide what is acceptable worship and what is not acceptable worship. And he tells us in his word. You know, I'm going to give you my opinion right here. And I've told you what my opinion is worth. And it's not worth a whole lot sometimes. But my opinion is that so much of this confusion over the worship of God results from people not understanding the nature and the holiness of God. We try to bring God down to our level and make God a man just like us, a human being just like us, and say, well, God would be pleased with that. No, God's ways are so much higher than our ways. God's thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. And so God says, here's how I'll be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Our spirit's directed by the Holy Spirit and according to the Word of God. And that's the only way God will accept our worship. Now listen to this. There's a huge difference between just attending church and coming to worship. A lot of people attend church. But I wonder how many people who attend church actually come to worship God. Now listen, God created man to worship. And mankind will worship something every day. We will worship. We say, how do I know what I worship? 
Again, opinion, but you know what? I think we really know what we worship. Sometimes we just don't want to admit it. Amen. Worship is our response to whatever we value the most. Whatever is worth the most to us is the thing that we will worship. It may be family, it may be friends, it may be fun, it may be money, it may be fame. Whatever is the most important to us is the thing that we will worship. And if you will find out what you worship, just follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your, yes, your money, and your allegiance. And at the end of that trail, you're going to find a throne. And on that throne will be the thing you and I worship the most. The worship of God in our society and in our day has become a matter of God serving us on our terms and not us serving Him on His terms. Amen. Let me ask you this question. If you received absolutely nothing at all, no blessings, no promise that your needs would be met, uh, nothing like that, not even your daily needs, would you still serve God? Ooh, I didn't hear any amens to that. <laughs> I've heard of people saying to those who serve God, well, it doesn't seem like it's done you any good because they're looking for material benefits in serving God. And that's not what we need to be looking for in serving Him. Matthew Henry said this, I like this quote, When we are in the house of God in solemn assemblies for religious worship, we are in a special manner before God and in His presence, there where He has promised to meet His people, and where His eye is upon us, and ours ought to be upon Him. Amen. Too many times we get our eyes on the choir, on the music director, on the preacher, on other people. No, when we come in here, our eyes ought to be on God. Our thoughts, our thinking ought to be on God. Solomon designed his attack on the vanity of vanities, on life under the sun, to drive us away from the world and to drive us to God. That's what this book of Ecclesiastes is about. And our disappointments with this present world. And look, if you're not disappointed with this present world, I'm going to pray for you. We ought to be disappointed with this present world. Our disappointments with this present world ought to cause us to turn our eyes away from the world and turn our eyes upon our Creator. Turn our eyes upon God. Turn our eyes to His throne of grace. See, the Scripture says that in Him we can find grace and we can find mercy and we can approach the throne of grace and find grace to help in time of need. Somebody said this, in the word and prayer, there's a balm for every wound. In the word of God and in talking to God, there's a balm, there's a healing for every wound. And if there's anything that ought to be held special to us, it ought to be our opportunity to come and to worship God. You say, preacher, you're preaching to the choir. We're here, amen. And I hope you're here not just to attend church, but I hope you're here to worship God this morning. I'm going to point out three things that Solomon says in these seven verses about worship. That's what he's talking about. And first of all, I want to talk about our approach to worship in verses 1 and 2. And you look at what he says. He says, keep thy foot when thou goest into the house of God. We're just going to pause right there for a moment. Keep thy foot. What does it mean, keep thy foot? Well, that word keep is an interesting word because it means to guard. It means to watch. 
It means to attend to. In fact, it had that. Remember when they had their vineyards or whatever crops they were growing, and they would put a watchtower out in the field, and, and they would grow hedges around it to keep people out. But these weren't just regular hedges. These were hedges with thorns. And so this word comes across, hedge your step. That's what foot means. Hedge your step in with hedges with thorns. When you come into the house of God, it's talking about being careful how we conduct ourselves. We have children sometimes and they're misbehaving. We say, watch your step. We mean you better watch how you're behaving. You better watch what you're doing, right? And so he said, watch your step. Watch yourself. Watch your behavior when you come into the house of God. Now, what was the house of God in Solomon's day? It was the temple, wasn't it? Remember Solomon God allowed Solomon to build the temple and Solomon dedicated it. Remember that when the temple was dedicated that the glory of God filled that temple and it just ought to have reminded people of the great holiness of God when they thought about going into the temple to worship God. But it's quite probable that there were worshipers that went into the temple that were not sincere. There were worshipers that so-called that went into the temple who didn't really worship God the way God wanted them to. And when they left, they were in worse spiritual condition than they were when they went into the temple. Now, you just can't halfway worship God. You know, these were guilty of robbing God of the honor that God deserves. Over in Malachi, the third chapter, the eighth verse, God asked the question, will a man rob God? Now, I know he's talking about tithes and offerings there. But let me give you another verse, and that's Psalm 96, verse 8, which says, Give unto the Lord the glory that is due unto his name. Okay? God deserves the glory that's due unto his name. And if we come with a half-hearted worship, if we come with an insincere worship, we cannot give God the glory that's due His name. If we have an imitation worship, we can't give God the glory that's due unto His name. And you know what we're doing when we do that? We are robbing God of the glory that God deserves. There's a reason, folks. I try to give it my all when I preach because God deserves it. Well, maybe I feel like you deserve it a little bit too, but God deserves it more than you do. There have been times I've gone away and I've said I didn't do my best. I didn't, it wasn't my best. And I'll beat myself up over that if I don't do it. And don't think I've done my best. I'll go home and I'll fuss at me. And people say, well, you, did a, you preached a good message. I don't care. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I love you. I appreciate you. And I like your opinion. But it really matters most what God's opinion of it was. All right? Amen. We should be attentive to God. He says, keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. Be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth. Let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. God's in heaven. You're upon the earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. One commentator pointed this out, that Solomon's target right here is those well-meaning worshipers and here's how he described it they like good singing they'll turn up cheerfully enough to church but they listen with half an ear to the preaching and never quite get around to doing what they have volunteered to do what they've committed themselves to do 
Solomon tells us how to approach God in worship. Look at what he says. Be more ready to hear. Okay? That's the first thing we want to know. Be more ready to hear. When we come into the worship of God, we ought to be expectant. We ought to be expectant. What do you mean expectant? Well, that word here means to hear intelligently with the idea of attention and obedience. When we come and listen to the Word of God, we ought to expect to hear God speak to our hearts. Somebody suggested there are probably more arguments and more difficulties on Sunday morning and on the way to church than any other time in the world, and I think they're probably right. The devil wants us to come to church having just had an argument or just having problems. He would like for us to come to church angry. He'd like for us to come to church out of fellowship with each other, husband and wife, brothers and sisters in Christ. He would like for us to come to church with unforgiveness in our hearts. You know why? When we come to church that way, guess where the message is going? We're not going to hear it. Well, I've seen it happen. You know, I've seen people, I was so glad they were in church. It just so happened. I didn't plan a message for them, but it was one they needed. You know, you ever think that about somebody? But you knew they needed it. And I would preach it, and they were so upset with somebody. They were so upset with something that was going on. They just went out in the same mood they came in with, and they were never touched by the Word of God. That's what Satan wants. He wants us to come with a heart that is not ready to receive the Word of God. We need to come expectantly. We are to diligently pay attention to the Word of God. We're listening, not just what, don't listen to what the preacher says, listen to what the Word of God says. Now God uses the preacher as the the voice in speaking the Word of God, but here's what we need to do in listening to it. We need to listen for the Holy Spirit to convict and to touch our hearts as the Word of God is preached. Give me an example, preacher, okay? I'll just use this message this morning. Maybe somebody came not really wanting to worship God today. You came because it was Sunday and it's church time, time to go to church. Want everybody to see me in church today. Well, if this message is speaking to your heart, you're being convicted of that. I need to come ready to worship God. And worship does not happen spontaneously. Preparation is necessary. Listen, you do expect Brother Rick to prepare a little bit, don't you? And the musicians and the choir, you expect them to prepare a little bit? Well, maybe you don't. <laughs> I don't know. How would you like it if your pastor got up one Sunday morning and said, well, you know, I've been doing a lot of things this week, working in the garden, mowing the yard, doing those things around the house, went out to somewhere and had enjoyable time out at the golf course or the park or the lake or wherever, you know. I really haven't had time to prepare anything, but let's just open the Bible and see what we can come up with. Would you like that? Maybe you would, okay. I don't know. I'm getting no response this morning. No, we expect people to prepare, don't we? We expect those that we call worship leaders, and I don't really like that term, but we expect those that we call worship leaders and pastor and all that, we expect them to be prepared. Well, then why would we think it's not important for the individual worshiper to be prepared when they come to church also? We are to hear, come expectantly, rather than offer the sacrifice of fools. You say, what is the sacrifice of fools? Basically, it is giving God less than our best. It's coming to worship Him with a divided heart and with a divided mind. 
We need to give Him our best in our hearing of the Word. We need to give Him our best in our singing. We need to give Him our best in our heartfelt worship. Malachi chapter 1. God, through Malachi, is talking to His people again. And in verse 7, look at what He says to them. He says, You offer polluted bread upon Mine altar. Verse 8, He says, You offer the blind for sacrifice. You offer the lame and the sick. Verse 13, You brought that which was torn and the lame and the sick. You know what he's telling them? Now what did God require in a sacrifice? The first and the best. And he's telling people, you hadn't brought the first. You hadn't brought the best. And listen to verses 11 and 12. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 12 says, But ye have profaned it, in that ye say the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible or despised. You didn't give your best. And God says, That affects my name. That affects my worship, and it affects my name. And then he says this, Avoid being rash with our mouth. Avoid being rash. Well, what does it mean to be rash? Well, literally it means to hasten anxiously or to make agitated. Somebody explained it this way. We are not to speak boldly and carelessly the way that we do one another. We come before God. I don't know about you. I have a real bad habit of talking a lot when I'm talking to people. And we're not to come that way before God, okay? That's what he's saying. And we're not to repeat things over and over and over before God. And then he says, don't be hasty. The word hasty means to flow like liquid. Okay? We come before God to worship Him. And we're to be very careful with our mouths. He said, don't be in a hurry to utter anything before God. In other words, we're to use this thing up here and we're to do some thinking before we make promises or Whatever before God. What's he talking about being hasty? Remember Matthew chapter 17? Jesus took Peter, James, and John up into the mountain and was transfigured before them. And I'm sure it was a glorious sight. And you'd get excited at that kind of sight. And Peter did. I love Peter. You know why I love Peter so much? It seemed like Peter was always speaking before he thought. So many times. And I love somebody like that because I do that. And here's Peter up in this wonderful, magnificent scene. The Lord being transfigured. And Moses and Elijah are there. And Peter, you know, it's a worship service. i got to say something, right? And so he says, Lord, it's good to be here. Amen. That's right. We need to build three tabernacles. One to you, one to Moses, and one to Elijah. And what happened? Moses and Elijah disappeared. <laughs> Peter ran his mouth. Peter got hasty. God says, no, this is my beloved son. You listen to him. Well, what's the significance of Moses and Elijah? Moses is a picture of the law. Elijah is a picture of the prophets. The prophets have been fulfilled. The law had been fulfilled. Jesus was going to take it out of the way at the cross. And God says, no, you listen to my son. Be careful about being hasty with our mouths. And then he says this, therefore let thy words be few. You say, you'd do well to listen to that preacher. Well, you would too, all right. Amen. 
Matthew Henry, again, he said, those that talk the most know the least. You know anybody like that? They got something to say about everything, but they really don't know much of anything. And the Word of God says, just let thy words be few. It is foolish to think that we will be heard more in our prayers because of our much speaking than to just very simply pray before God or come before God. I heard of a situation. This supposedly really happened with one of our preachers. He called on a man to lead in prayer in a service, and the man got up and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. You know, one of those long prayers. And finally, after several minutes, he said amen. And everybody sat down, and the preacher said, please stand for prayer. And he called on the same man. And the man prayed and prayed and prayed, another one of those long prayers. And finally, he said amen. Everybody sat down, and the preacher said, please stand for prayer. Called on the same man. The man said just a few words and said amen. Everybody sat down. Preacher looked at him and said, now stay caught up. <laughs> just because we use a lot of words doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to get our way with God. So there's our approach to worship. But then he talks about our attitude in worship in verses 4 through 6. And in verse 4 he says, When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. We need to understand the seriousness of our relationship and our fellowship with God. And here's two common dangers that we make many times. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. You know what that word defer means? And this is not my message on this subject, but that word defer means procrastinate. To loiter, to procrastinate. When you make a vow to God, when you make a promise to God, here's what he's saying, pay it today. Amen. Don't put it off. Don't even let it wait till tomorrow. Don't say I'll do it at a more convenient time. When you make a promise to God, keep that promise. Amen. Why ought I be concerned about keeping my vow in a timely manner? First of all, because a delay... God considers foolishness. What does it say? He says he has no pleasure in fools. Making a vow and putting it off then is being foolish before God. I used to tell our children when they were growing up, delayed obedience is no obedience at all. It's disobedience. If mom and dad tell you to do something, we mean do it right now. And to say I'll do it when I get ready is disobedience. And the same is true with God. And by the way, when we delay, when we say, I'm going to put, I'll fulfill this vow in a little bit later on at another day, the sense of obligation to that vow slackens and cools, and we're liable to forget it altogether. Another reason, the longer you put it off, you make a promise, this vows to God or promises to anybody, you make a promise to God, the longer you put it off, the harder it is to keep. It gets easier to make excuses for not doing what we promised to do when we wait, when we put it off. And before long, we may even forget that we made a promise to God. Here's another one. If we delay, death may keep us from keeping our promise. And then we've lied to God. And we go out of this world having lied to God. There are a lot of promises, folks, that are made during worship services. Mostly during revival services. People say, oh, yes, they get all stirred up by the preaching. And they get excited and they start making promises to God. Oh, we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to do this. And within just a few weeks, that has worn off. We're right back 
in the same old habit. And so he says, don't defer. Don't procrastinate. And Solomon gives us two reasons to keep our vows speedily and two reasons to keep them cheerfully. And one of them is this, because otherwise, you know what we're doing? We're attempting to play God for a fool. I'm going to make a promise to you, Lord, to get what I want, but I'm not going to keep the promise, so I'm going to put off keeping the promise. Again, God has no pleasure in fools. The Scripture says, Galatians chapter 6, God is not mocked. You don't make a fool out of God, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. And we also are wrong ourselves and lose the benefit of the vow when we delay in keeping the vow. So he simply says this, just do what you said God you'd do. Pay your vow. Keep your promise to God. But then there's another danger, and that's the danger of what I call denied obedience. Denied obedience. Verses 5 and 6, he says, Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. He says in verse 5, it's better that you shouldn't vow than that you should make a vow, a promise to God, and not keep it, and not pay there's no other way to say it. It's sin. You promise God you're going to do something. You better do it. Because not to do it is sin. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. We have a New Testament example of a couple of folks like that. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, don't we? They said, we're going to sell a piece of land. And what they said was, we're going to give the whole price of the land to the church. That church at Jerusalem. What did they do? Well, you know, church doesn't really need all that. We'll keep back a part of it for ourselves, but we'll still tell them this is what we got for the land. Let me tell you something about, in fact, if you read there in Acts chapter 5, what did Peter ask them? Why have you conspired to lie to who? The Holy Spirit. I tell you what, you start lying to the Lord's church, you're not just lying to the church. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. You're trying to lie to God. You can't lie. To God, what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? God struck them dead. They didn't keep their promise. They lied to God. I've shared with you, and I'm not going to go into great detail about it this morning, but I've shared with you before what my experience was. God's dealing with me about the call to preach, and Dad climbed a 100-foot water tower, and I said, Lord, if you'll let him get down safely, I'll do what you want me to do. A year went by and I hadn't done what I told God I'd do. He climbed a 30 to 35 foot pole and fell off of it. Suffered severe injuries. Very nearly died. Do you not think that I was reminded of the promise that I had made to God at that point? And so the very next Sunday we got back. We were in Israel when that happened. We got back from Israel. The very next Sunday I walked the aisle. God's called me to preach. I waited five years before I even started seminary. You know, Kept putting it off. During that time, our mother was diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Folks, keep your vows. Keep your promises to God. And then he warns about this, making the excuse of saying, well, it was an error. Right? <laughs> we don't ever do that. Error talked about a mistake. Now, Lord, when I promised you that, I didn't know things were going to turn out this way, and so that was really a mistake on my part, and I really shouldn't have promised it that way. 
I saw this TV preacher one time, and he was getting on to his folks for writing checks to the church and those checks coming back insufficient funds. And he said this to them. That's a willful act. Because you know when you write that check to the church, you know whether you have enough money in that account to cover that check or not. And so you just write the check and it comes back insufficient funds, you know. Well, you know what? When we make a vow to God and then later we say it was an error, we know it wasn't an error. We know we were being serious when we made that vow to God. And then it involves chastisement because he says, Why or wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? When we lie to God, when we don't keep our promises, when we delay our promises, we're asking for the chastisement of God in our lives. I've shared with you what I endured. It happened to come upon my family that I love very much, but I believe that was the chastisement of God. God's not pleased when we lie to Him in this manner. Destroy the work of thine hands. You know what that means? Blast their enterprises. You know, we'll make a promise to God because we want something to happen. Because we're involved in this thing or that thing and we want good results. And so, Lord, if you'll let this happen, then I'll serve you. And we don't serve Him. Well, guess what? God can destroy your enterprise also. If we revoke our vows to God, He can overthrow our projects, folks. And that goes whether it's an individual or a church. Have we made any promises to God as a church? I believe we have. I believe churches do. Have we individuals made any promises to God through this church? Now, a lot of churches don't have this today, but I like to point it out because we still have one that's hanging on our wall out front. It's a thing called the church covenant. What is a covenant? It's just a list of promises. And everything that is in that church covenant is in the Word of God. These are things that we just sort of covenant together. We promise to one another these are things that we're going to do. And we're going to keep these things. And we make that vow. We make that promise. And one of those is, and this is not for you, this is for folks who are not here. You say, how are they going to hear it? Well, I just hope you'll help them hear it. But one of those things is that we will support the worship of this church, both with our finances and with our presence. Okay? So when people say, well, I'm not going to church today, you know, tired of that preacher, well, you made a promise to the church, forget about the preacher. And then Solomon in verse 7 deals with what I call our attention in worship. And someone stated this. And this is going to be very short, but someone stated this. It has been written that cultural Christianity means to pursue the God we want instead of the God that is. And that's what a lot of people want to do today. They have an image of God. It's the God they want. It's not the God of heaven. It's the God they want. And they want to pursue that God. He'll give me anything I want. He'll take care of my enemies. He'll, you know, just whatever we can imagine. And that's the God I want. Well, that's not necessarily the God of heaven, okay? This cultural Christianity is a tendency to be shallow in our understanding of God, wanting Him to be more of a gentle grandfather type who spoils us and lets us have our own way. That's the God so many people want to worship today. It is a sensing a need for God, but on our terms. I tell you what, you come to God, you're going to come on His terms, or you're not going to come. 
It is wanting the God we have underlined in our Bibles without wanting the rest of Him too. It is God relative, not God absolute. That's cultural Christianity. And that's happening in a lot of churches today, folks. We don't need cultural Christianity. We need the Christianity of the Bible. We serve the God of the Bible. So you know what Solomon says at the end of verse 7? Just fear God. That is so simple. And it is so simple we're in danger of overlooking it. Just fear God. What does it mean to fear God? It means to reverence God. It means to be in awe of God. God is God. He said back in one of the earlier verses, he said, here's the problem. God's in heaven. We're on the earth. We better recognize who's in heaven and who's not, right? Fear God, reverence God. I was also taught growing up, you better fear what God can do if he decides to chasten you too. So I think we've missed that aspect of fearing God because so many preachers today want to just say, well, just reverence God. That's what fear God means. No, God can chasten and does. Hebrews chapter 12, chasten his children. I've suffered the chastisement of God and I don't want to do it again. The book of Ecclesiastes ends, and we're not through with this series, but we're going to jump to chapter 12 for just a moment because it ends this way. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. What am I supposed to do? Fear God and obey Him. Fear God and keep His commandments. Verse 14, for God shall bring every work into judgment and every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Here's how not to be dismayed before God. Fear God and keep His commandments. Reverence, respect God, understand that God can chasten, and just do what God says to do. Folks, it's much easier so much easier to make a promise than it is to keep a promise, isn't it? I don't know how many promises I've made in my life, but I'll guarantee you I hadn't kept all of them. And people often do that with God. They make Him a promise. They're bargaining to Him in prayer. Maybe they're going in for some major surgery. Maybe they have a loved one that's ill. Maybe because of COVID and things that are going on, they start making promises. I'm going to bargain with God. Doesn't work. But they make promises. And speaking many words and making many vows, it's just like they're grasping the wind. That's what he says. Vanity of vanities. That's what it is. And how we prepare to worship God, listen to this, reveals our attitude toward God before, during, and after the worship service. Don't need to repeat that. How we prepare to come and worship God reveals our attitude toward God before, during, and after the worship service. It's very good and very easy to look all reverent in here, isn't it? To look respectful. Hey, I'm coming here. I'm coming to worship God, man. Look at me. But what about in a few moments when we go out those doors and go get in our cars and go home or we stop at a restaurant to eat or whatever we do. What's our attitude toward God? Do, you know what happens? 
Here I go. I'm going to go out on this limb and I'm going to saw it off behind me, all right? But here's what I think a lot of people do. They come in here to worship God or in a place like this when they worship God. But once they get outside the doors, he becomes the farthest thing from their minds. What I have to do tomorrow, right now, next week, whenever, becomes the most important thing. God should always be foremost in our hearts, in our lives, and in our minds, folks. How we approach God may hinder us from being able to hear His Word. Solomon calls going through the motions of worship the sacrifice of fools. Church time. I'm going to be worldly right up to the worship service. I'm going to sit all godly in the worship service. I'm going to be worldly. Sacrifice of fools. That's what the Word of God calls it. And we should not be hasty or rash in our worship, in our prayers, or in our vows to God. Because God takes our vows seriously even if we do not. Solomon warns again it's better to just come in and not even make a promise to God. We're going to have an invitation to him in just a moment. It's better to come in and not even make a promise to God. You know, during the invitation, I offer the opportunity, if you want to come into this altar and kneel and pray and talk to God, and you know, that's not the only place you can talk to God, but you know, at the end of the service, we want to do that. If God's word has touched your heart and you want to do that, that's fine. But be careful about coming down here and making some vow to God you don't intend to keep. Or some vow to God that you can't keep because this, God always, always, always keeps His promises. How are we at keeping our promises to God? Have you made any vows to God? I'm not asking you to raise your hand to indicate in any way, but have you ever made any vows, any promises to God and not kept them? If you have, you've probably endured at least God's conviction, if not his chastisement. I cannot explain to you my heart when it comes to this thing called a worship service. I so want it to always be right and us be filled with people who have really come to worship God. I think it's showing our singing. I think it'll show in our responding to the Word of God and however God leads you to respond to it. But it, for many, many years, has just been a burden on my heart about when we come to worship, it needs to be biblical, as I said earlier, scriptural. It needs to be something that is pleasing to God that brings Him the greatest glory. Amen. Otherwise, we're just offering the sacrifice of fools. Watch your step when you go into the house of God.